This podcast is brought to you by Trivelo Coaching, where we help triathletes and cyclists like you train smarter to race faster. You've got your host, Jordan Donnelly here, and on my left is my dad, uh, head coach of Trivelo Coaching and former Australian Ironman champion, Jared Donnelly. In today's episode, we're going to look at five out-of-the-box ways that you can become a better athlete. Now, what's something that you could do that others aren't doing to, com- to gain a competitive advantage? What's something that will give you a good bang for your buck? But first, as always, our starting segment. Dad, welcome to the episode and what are you grateful for? Thanks, Jordan. Definitely the last experience that I've had recently. Um, I'm so grateful for friendships. And the friendships that I made when I was 17, 18, I got an opportunity to um, spend some time with those uh, group of mates and it's, that's 45 years later. And when we meet up with each other, we carry on like we were at uni and we don't carry on that much, but we, <laughs> but, but we just pick up where we left off and we might not have seen each other for five years or two years or six months. And it doesn't matter. Um, we are accepting of each other, our weaknesses and our strengths. We know them very well because we've, we've spent a long time together. And there's been periods where we haven't caught up for, for ages. Mm-hmm. But the friendships we made then were really good decisions. And in our uni cohort, there would have been over 100 people and probably selected maybe 10 people who I chose to spend some time with, selected those people who I thought were like-minded. And so the friendships are a really important thing that you should uh, really think clearly about who you want to spend time with because when you get to my age, you haven't got a lot of time left and you don't want to waste your time with people who are going to make yourself unhappy. So so thinking about who you want to spend your time with that's going to bring you the most happiness is what I'm grateful for and that was reminded to me in spades with the period I just spent with some of my, my better mates. So, yeah, very grateful for that. Awesome. I love that one. Uh, my one is I'm quite grateful for supermarkets. Uh, I think it's amazing how we can just go down to the local store and pick up all our fresh fruit, vegetables. I like going to the um, butcher or the seafood section and getting fresh meat there. Uh, I just think it's yeah unbelievable system we have and we um, something we do every single week, uh, but to have such good fresh food available all week and to be able to eat really well, I'm, I'm really grateful for it. We're so fortunate, aren't we? Mm. When you think about what's happening around the world and not just with COVID, but the availability we have to, to just not struggle. And there are people in Australia struggling, I'm not saying that, but uh, it is it is so such a good country to live in. Yep, absolutely. Our next segment is what's caught your attention? Well... Last year in 2020 in the Tour of Lombardia, there was a really horrific crash Um, and uh, one of the Belgian riders who was going to be the next best world rider with Matthew van der Poel and Wout van Aert. Um, And I suppose when I I think about his Palmares, um, um, Remco van der Poel won the world time trial and road race as a junior. Um, He also played soccer for... PSV and Alec and and was in the junior Belgium you know World Cup team. Mm-hmm. Um, so so this guy's a talent and that crash that he had, uh, he broke his pelvis and you know, really had bad 
lung injuries. It was a horrific crash. It was, yeah. He he hit the side of a bridge uh, and then fell a couple of metres down a crevasse and ended up, you know, really, it was really a scary, it was like he didn't die. Mm. Uh, And to to watch what's caught my attention about that, you know, people crash. So, so what's so interesting about that? Well, this is one of the one of the probably the the best riders up you know in the last ten years to come through cycling, and his his career is almost taken away from him, and he's at a crossroads with what is he going to do about that? And that's the thing that's caught my attention. Following his Instagram story, and if anybody has a chance, look up Rimco Evanapol and and just see how he struggled from day one moving a few inches to moving a metre two weeks later to moving four metres four weeks later and how slow the progress was and how he suffered and how his mindset was unbelievably focused on returning to be the best he could possibly be. And if and if he did everything that he was supposed to do and he still couldn't ride his bike, then at least he knew he tried and that was the impression that he was trying to – he wasn't showing off in his social media. He was just – I think trying to inspire people that no matter what happens to you, um, you, you can find a way to, to to still try to get the best out of yourself. And um, so he's lining up to the Giro d'Italia um, this weekend and they're already giving him favourite status, which is really unfair. Yeah. But, <laughs> but that's what people think of, of his talent and mm-hmm. he's kind of deflecting it saying, oh, my goal is just to see if I can ride with people Um and st- keep up, you know. He's quite a modest guy, and and it's it's just an outstanding story. And I can't wait to see how the story progresses. Uh, he's got he's got the rest of his cycling career to go, and whether he's successful or not, I just take my hat off to him and and say, you know, chapeau, well done. Uh, you, you are an incredibly resilient person, and uh, the dedication you've shown, the example you've shown of of not. You know, sucking and and saying I've got an excuse not to. You know, he's he's just turned every stone to make sure that he's prepared. And it wasn't that long ago, nine months almost. Mm. Um, and here he is lining up mm. in a grand tour. If you didn't follow his story personally, um, it's understandable why people just hear his back and go, "Oh, he must be a favourite." And if you're following it, you're going, "Are you crazy?" The fact that he is at the Giro is is remarkable. And if you watch some of those videos he put up it's really raw it's uh it's hard to watch how how far he's come back from and the fact that he's there is uh, when I was watching those videos I couldn't believe it and you just think it took it must have taken incredible mental toughness to be where he was and to get back so painstakingly slow uh, to now be back at the elite level it was a debilitating um journey um but just shows your consistency and just chipping away and setting pbs whether it's moving two metres or four metres, you know, just challenging yourself along the journey and, and and listening to good advice and getting the best assistance and help and reaching out, all those things that, that are really important for your personal growth and every person should be should be thinking about those things, whether it's because you're injured or because you're struggling mentally or, or you just want a better program, you know. You just need to learn more mm. and reach out and, and, in, and be inquiring mm. um, and... 
And, you know, there's a lot to learn from this lesson. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's a really good one. Uh, what caught what has caught my attention is there was an unbelievable uh, 70.3, Ironman 70.3 race. I actually don't know if it was Ironman or Challenge. Uh, you can get confused between the two companies, but I'm sure they don't like that. But none of the a half Ironman. Yeah, exactly. None of the athletes seem to care whether it's Ironman <laughs> or Challenge. It's more of a rival, rivalry between uh, the, the companies. But um, it was in St. George in America, and um, it was an epic race, to be honest, Um the bike field, the top 20 or so guys were all together as one big pack, the entire bike. And then the run leg just had so much uh, drama in it. And there's a lot of points to uh, bring up from this 70.3 that I want to ask you a few questions about it. But uh, basically Canada's best athlete, Lionel Sanders, and one of America's best triathletes, Sam Long, uh, came down to a sprint finish in a 70.3, which is pretty epic. And the last the last 5K, they're sort of neck and neck and um, they're really just kind of pushing each other, one edging in front of the other. It's like a classic running race, but you forget that they're at the end of a 70.3. It's, I haven't seen a race that, that close that often. And um, it, you could see the mental toughness and um, Lionel Sanders won it and uh, he would have been, you'd guess, a better runner, but he, um, he was so emotional when he crossed the line and straight away he just said, best battle I've ever had and toughest win I've ever had. Um and so there's a few things I want to talk about from the race. Um, one is that uh, Sam Long, after the race, so he came second, um, ran exceptionally well. Uh, he spoke in an interview and said that uh, you know, pre-COVID, he was not as strong a runner um, and he was a really good bike rider, but he was quite tall. And so he always got told that he's not going to be a good swimmer because he's coming from far, coming from so far back with swimming and he's not going to be um, that good a runner either, um, which I don't understand. Most most really good runners uh, can be quite tall and lean and he's got a really nice style. But he said over this whole COVID period, he really focused on his weaknesses and he used the period, like we've spoken about on the podcast, to um, take that time and um, use it to his advantage and um, be able to improve his swim and improve his run. And he's um, showed that where he's kept up with one of the best runners in the scene with Lionel Sanders. My question is, a lot of these athletes talk generically about uh, improving your weaknesses um, as well as your strengths, and we've spoken about it as well, but how can you fit both into a training program? Because when you you spend more time on your weaknesses, you're automatically taking time away from your strengths. So if he wants to, um, if someone wants to improve their weaknesses, do they have to sacrifice a little bit of their strength for a period? What's, What's the best way to go about that? Well, the first question I ask is, uh, when you say you're improving your weaknesses, what actually are you doing? Are you adding more sessions? So that's the first question. Mm-hmm. And if the answer is no, then what actually are you doing? So you're actually saying to yourself, well, I don't think the program in this particular example of running is getting me to where I want to go. So so I would say that's more what they're doing. They're actually realising that the program they're on is not benefiting them as much as it should be. So they're changing their program. So, so if, if you stayed on the same running program mm-hmm. and, and continue to improve, then is that you working on your weaknesses? So what I'm trying to get at is there's no way you can work on your weaknesses without changing something in your program. So you're sort of saying, well, my running program's crap. Yep, yep. You're saying unless you change something, then you're not working on your weaknesses. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, so does that mean adding more pro- sessions or doing the same sessions but changing something in the program? Yeah. Is what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, 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 yeah. Could you do both? Add more sessions and change something? Well, you you could. Yes, of course you could add more sessions. Yeah. Um, but 
is the point you're making spending more time on your weaknesses isn't necessarily the answer. That's it's, right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So spending more time on something is not necessarily going to make you better. Yeah. Running more isn't going to necessarily make yeah. you better. Running with more um, specific goals is going to make you yeah. uh, a better runner. Yeah. So at the end of the day, is you you know, you're doing a half Ironman or an Ironman. So it's a half marathon or a marathon. How do you improve that? And we've spoken so much about having strength at the back end. So that would be something I would be saying. You know, if you want to perform better, you need to be stronger as a runner. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean go and run faster intervals. Yeah. It means go to the hills and, yeah. and run more strength work. Yeah. Um, that perfectly answers my question because my question was based around how do you spend more time on one thing without sacrificing the other? And you're saying it's not about time, it's about the type and quality of training that you're doing. Yeah, you need to change up something. And yep. and sure, you can add more and eventually that will work by adding more volume, but it could also have a detrimental effect where you are actually going to get tighter and not improve. Yeah, nah, perfect. Um, some other questions that popped up from this race were uh, the there was commentary after the race about the fact that a lot of the pros were frustrated because there was this long train of 20 guys spread out by 10 metres. And Lionel Sanders, the guy that won, he's a poor swimmer. So he was at the back at the start and he was trying to make his way up, but there was no gap, you know, and he couldn't overtake a train of 200 metres because he was just blowing himself up, but he could never get there. Um and then he would see a gap open up and so he tried to pass four or five guys, but by the time he got there, the gap was closed and there was nowhere for him to go and it was this constant um, race of just guys trying to overtake each other 10 metres at a time and obviously people go through different periods in the race where they are going faster and slower. So he just said it was it, it was a bit laughable how, how they're all going and they spoke about some solutions being that fields have to be less packed with elite riders so you're not having as, as many because um, those packs are just too big. Um, he spoke about... Uh, longer um, draft draft zones, so twenty meter draft zones, um, which I don't understand really quite how that helps as much. Um, but I thought, what what if they change endurance distances, so seventy point three and Ironmans, to become draft legal? You know, so everyone's still on a TT bike, but draft legal. Would that be something that you would be interested in seeing? It's exactly what happened with sprint and, and Olympic to a to a point. Because there was so many guys of equal ability, it was impossible to be dra- uh, to be separated correctly yeah, at, yeah. in drafting. So they just threw their hands up in the air and said, "Well, you just have to ride together." Yeah, and and that all that did was create a, a gap between the really crappy swimmers and the guys who were good. So it meant this, if you were never going to win a triathlon if you couldn't swim, mm. and then it changed it from an equal swim bike run to you had to be a great swimmer. You didn't have to be such a good bike rider because you're already with the pack and yeah. it's easy to sit in and do nothing. Yeah. It's not easy. Yeah. It's still easier. Yeah. And it was just the best, the best runner one. Yeah. That's actually how this sport has evolved as a profession. Yeah. So do you want do you want to see that in endurance um, where the bike is just a, a pack of riders and the guys who can't swim fast don't make that pack mm. and they form another pack just like a bike race? Mm. Um, yeah, it's got merit. Um, but that's not the original intention of triathlon. Yeah. So – it, you know, do you want this, the pros to just have whatever is going to be more watchable or more enjoyable? Yeah. Um, just like cricket's an original intention was to be test cricket five days and now we've got two sets of 20 overs mm. and it's gone away from the original intention but yeah. still successful yeah. and people want to play it. Yeah. So so I'm, I'm all for um, variety and, and change and 
And if people still want to do, you know, the, you know, it's, it's a, a lot harder in an Ironman for people to all be equal. Mm. You know, there are going to be some people who are going to struggle. But as you know, the person who's on the front of the bunch, um, at some point he's going to be unhappy to be there because yeah. he's not going to drag yeah. 20 guys yeah. around for 90K. Yeah. So he's going to want to sit up yeah. and let someone else take a turn. Yeah. And, and he's mad if he doesn't yeah. because he's actually going to get to the run so much more fatigued than the rest of the field, not from his fault, but because no one can pass. So so there's a whole lot of little things that could be, um, you know, cause issues with, yeah. with the decision you make with this. So so I would, I would definitely have a trial yeah. where, you know, you can draft on the bike yeah. over 90K. Yeah. And it just comes back to you have to improve your swim so you, do, you don't miss the pack yeah. and you have to be an unbelievably good half marathon runner. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it changes the sport again. Yeah. And yeah. That, that's that's okay. Yeah. Sports evolve. Yeah. Um and and draft legal half Ironman could be the next the next step to, yeah. to prevent that. Because at Kona on the big day where everybody's at the world t- championships, all the pros are there, you do have long lines, mm. but because the swim's so long, um, there is gaps and yep. and becomes, you know, who can get out of the water quicker, uh, through transition transition quicker get a two-minute gap um, so the guys chasing have to actually work hard yeah, yeah. and then they form the, the echelon of yeah. 150 metres with 10 guys yeah. um, and and the guys behind have to do the same thing. They have to change their tactics. They have to talk to each other and and form an echelon so that they can work hard to catch the guys up front. So there's so many things yeah, that the pros like, would have to actually work together, which is, again, against the whole idea of triathlon, which is an individual sport. Yeah. and. You're trying to do this by yourself, but but because it's a professional sport, um, but you look at the age groupers. There's you know there's so many packs. Yeah, you know, I've seen photos of Kona, you know, with, from long distance with yeah. just looks like a you know a, a grand fondo ride yeah, yeah. with yeah. five hundred people. So they can't really stop that. Can no, they? it's yeah. near impossible. Yeah. And you get to get pinged there, you got to be pretty unlucky. Yeah. And the, the the big positive is the um, growth of the sport and how popular it is and how many good elite athletes are um, yep. in the same category. And look, the only the only thing I can see is to put a cap on the entrance and you can only have 20 pros. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that's interesting because my thought process was, you know, in an Olympic distance uh, where it's only a 40K ride, it's really easy for everyone to stay as a pack and no one will risk doing too much work. But when it gets to 90K or 180, it will become more like a pretty epic road race where there'll be a lot of bike racing tactics Um and yeah, people won't be pulling big turns at the front. Uh, guys at the front will try to be conserved, which means packs behind can catch up if they work together. So, but you're right, that does completely change the sport because it's no, it's no longer, mm. it's an individual sport, but not an individual time trial. That's right. Yeah. One aspect's changed. Yeah. And last, last point on this was uh, in that epic uh, run, uh, Sam Long used the tactic of he was catching Sanders with 10K to go or something um, or 8K to go. And, Sanders was saying after he could hear him coming and then when he was 10 metres behind, he sprinted and he just flew past him um, and got 20 metres on him. And Sanders said, I thought he was just a gun runner and I'm done. And I tried to surge and I was kind of panicking a little bit and it sort of worked, but he couldn't hold that forever. So he eventually slows up and slowly Sanders made his way back to him. Um, and then the rest of the you know, that last final bit, 
they were constantly surging and it was almost over under effort. So they were surging, going above the threshold to try and break the other person and then they'd both relax and kind of settle and recover a little bit. And what do you think of those tactics in something like a high fine man? And this is a bit different because we're talking about pros, we're not talking about the age grouper. I don't think you'd ever advise an age grouper to do that. Um, but what do you think of those tactics, those surging tactics in a half Ironman? And could you use that to your advantage as an age grouper if you are a you know, sh- strong over-under runner um, compared to just the same grueling pace? Well, my, my go-to mantra is always to, and that's the athlete I was, I was not good at going over threshold and then recovering and then going again. I, steady state was what got me as an endurance athlete. And I had a great ability, as you know, to hold power within four watts um, with really practice pressure on the pedals where, you know, and running, I could run 331 to 332 pace till the cows come home um, and and that's what was my strength. It's the minute someone in a bike race surges, it was going to put me under pressure yeah. and so I had two choices, uh, hold my nerve and ride to my power because I know they can't hold it, you know, unless they're way better rider than, mm. than I am. And the same as a runner. I need to know my opposition. If they're a, a two-hour 50 marathon runner and they're now running at 3.10 pace, well, I know that their best time. So it's knowledge of your mm. opposition. Mm-hmm. They can't hold it. So let them go. And and that's something I should work on in training yep. to get better at surging. So the two answers there, you know, understand who you're competing against. And if they're, if they're a 242 runner and you're a 250 – well, there's nothing you can do about it anyway because they're going to run away from you mm. whether they surge or not. And you need to actually up your ante and your game in training to be able to withstand that type of running style. Um, you know, practice it. Just don't practice even steady state riding, running or, yep. or both. Yep. Yep. So, so that was a weakness of me and anybody who knew that would have a huge advantage over me but obviously that's not something that you would, that you, would you know, yep. um, Give as you know. Well, I give wouldn't be that saying that in an interview. I'd <laughs> yeah. be saying, you know, um, I wouldn't be mentioning that was hurting me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the guy put in a surge, but I was able to yeah. um, get back, and that would be a po- turning it into a positive. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it's a really good question. And I, at the end of the day, you, you've just got to understand what your strengths and weaknesses are compared to the other people. So, no, knowledge of other competitors is, is is quite important. Yeah, and and if you don't know them, not going into that panic mode and um, yeah, I guess if they go flying, just think, well, if they're going that fast, then I'm not going to be able to keep up with them. Um, and yep. if they, it's not their ability, they'll slow down eventually and my steady state could catch them. Yeah, a really calm person would say, at, now I'm running three-minute K pace. Well, that's a 2.11 marathon yeah. and we're an Ironman. Yeah. You know, I'm just – I don't know yeah, those yeah, yeah, numbers. Yeah. I'm just making it up. Yeah. But, but, you know, my, my uh, common sense brain will go, this is unsustainable, yeah. so I'll ease up. Yeah. And making decisions based on, you know, really solid information that you're getting from yourself. Yeah. Um, you know, you know what pace equals the best, you know, the best ever marathon in a triathlon might be a 2.39 by Jan Fredino or 2.38 or probably faster than that now, but yeah. it's incredible yeah, yeah. Um, pace. But if someone's running 2.32 pace and it's not Jan Fredino, yeah. you're pretty guaranteed that he's going to blow up. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
you know, you're making decisions based on information. Yeah. It's really good information for bike riders uh, if they're ever doing a, a tour with a, on a hill stage or any hill race where um, there's a pack and someone wants to surge above the power and you're going to be asking the same questions. Can they hold that power? Are they that much of a better bike rider that they're going to get away or do we just trust my power number and we can bring them back? Yeah, and one question you ask is how long is the hill? Is it a two-minute hill? Well, I'm going to go with him. Mm. Is it a five-minute hill? I'm going to go with him but I'm going to see – what I'm riding, mm. if it's a 10 or 15 minute hill, he can go for as fast as he likes because <laughs> yeah. this is the best I can do for 20 minutes. Yeah. And even if I do a PB of five or 10 watts, I'm still not going to be able to keep up with him. Yeah. So limiting your losses yep. and maybe trying to fight it to get back another way yeah. is, is your only other option. Yeah, great answers. Right, into today's topic, five unusual ways to become a better athlete. And the uh, first topic, um, I see you do a lot of weird things Uh in your training uh, on the bike, which is kind of what gave the idea of this episode. So point number one is uh, the games you play with power. And you mentioned it before, why you're such a good um, steady state uh, rider in terms of steady state in this context, meaning you can just hold the same power for such incredible lengths of time. Uh, so talk me through some of these weird games you play with yourself where you, um, yeah. Uh, I suppose the main the main thing when I was training for the, the most recent style of races that I tr- decided to enter and I don't like to use myself as an example but I'm always experimenting on myself and for the last 15 years I've been concentrating on bike races where it's unpredictable riding mm. and that was my weakness over under because I came from a triathlon background to go into a bike race where guys aren't riding steady state they're absolutely trying to uh, attack and then sit and recover and then attack again and look for opportunities in crosswinds and so it's such a tactical event compared to a triathlon. So I had to change my whole training so that I was practicing over, under type, reinventing myself. Um, but it was so good to go back to training for a, a steady state race, which is the triathlon, I, you mm. know, or the, the aqua bike and the, yep. the swimming bike and or, or just the team's bike event in the 70.3. So it was like my bread and butter. Mm. And I go back to my uh, tried and true sessions where – um, the ability to hold steady state power slightly above your range and slightly below but not gassing it like you do on a bike race where you could be, you know, 80 watts above your, your range and 10 watts, uh, you know, uh, 100 watts below your range. Mm. And whereas in a triathlon, you're, you're really trying to stay in that middle, yep. um, not spike it and not drop it. Yep. So, so one of the things I practised for years was to try and hold power within five watts. Um, so, so not – Using the three-second information data on the bike computer screen, where if I'm trying to ride, say it's a a zone two ride, but I'm trying to ride 40 minutes at 210 watts to 215 and not see any numbers at 216 or 209. That's a really hard thing to do um, for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. The concentration level, it's not hard physically, but pedalling to keep the pressure on the power, the power on the pedals is the thing you're concentrating on. So you've, you've got to keep your upper body still, not pull on the handlebars, keep the 360-degree pedalling action as smooth as possible, and then I would throw myself on the rollers and and do that exact same mm. thing. So do it on a stationary trainer, do it on the rollers, and go outside where there is no flat bit of road, yeah. whereas the rollers are dead flat. Yeah. So all I'm worried about is resistance and pedalling, mm. and there's no wind. Mm. So then you take it to a velodrome and try and do it, mm. try and ride in that zone. Why am I trying to do that? I'm trying to do that because on a 70.3 bike race of 90K, I want to 
if I wasn't doing the run afterwards, number one, I want to not have spikes so that so that I get off fresh as possible. And also I can ride well at the end of the bike ride. So they're the two main reasons mm-hmm. that I'm not trying to spike things like we've talked about in a few podcasts, six or seven podcasts ago where um, uh, I'm really trying to hone in on uh, minimising um, – the power that's going to hurt me the most for the endurance of the of the of the whole event. So if I want to be at the top of the range. I want to be at ninety percent, but I want to be within five watts of that. And of course, outdoors with a headwind far out, that is not easy to do. Mm. But if you've practiced it uh, in training, um, you can ride it ninety to ninety two percent into the headwind when you when it counts for five or ten minutes or however long you're in the headwind for. Mm-hmm. And in some p- cases, it's 25 minutes where you're trying to hold and then all of a sudden there's a rise in that headwind. So all of a sudden now you need to be at 295 to 298 watts um, and hold that. So you're really in control and that's going to give you a better outcome. Um, And if if I know when I'm getting ragged is when I look down and I see 310 and then I see 270 and I'm thinking, oh, get back to pedaling. Yeah, Yeah, you know. And I'm going to get a better outcome. That's why the main reason I'm doing it is because it's going to enable me to ride the same way the whole way through and, be, and in fact, be stronger at the back end. Yeah. Um, so, so if I don't have that already, that ability, um, it's, it's a weakness that I've got and, and I'm really trying to coach people to, to get that as a strength, uh, their pedaling action, to push the power within. So be so accurate. The example would be, uh, an archer, he needs to be able to hit the, the five, seven, nine, or ten, and be able to say, I'm, hit, "I'm aiming for the five and not hit the ten. Mm. You know, or a dart player needs to just get it close enough. Yeah, he needs to hit double, double twenty. Yeah, um, and and that's how accurate you want to be, so that you're really finely controlling. Um, and as, tri- as a triathlete, it's not about the other competitors. It's about you and what your ability is over that distance. And if someone goes past you, it doesn't make any difference to me. Mm. It's, I'm not going to up it. I have done that in many races and it's cost me dearly because mm-hmm. I've started racing someone else's plan. Yep. So it's irrelevant what other people are doing on the day. Yep. So, so that is one of the little obs- weird things that I practice. And in that same effort, I'm also practicing – how controlled can I keep my heart rate? Um, and if I know, and I've practiced this, if I sit up on the rollers with no hands and push the same power, I'm astounded at how much my heart rate goes up because of the anxiety <laughs> of riding no hands. Yeah. I've put an extra flush of adrenaline in. Oh, I'm risking something here. I could come off. Um, but it, it affects my heart rate. Mm. So it reminds me of how my mindset needs to be not panicking at any stage. I need to be calm so that I don't spike my heart rate. As you know, the more times your heart rate beats over that journey, the tighter you get. Mm. So let's not do that. Let's keep our heart rate as flatlined as possible. Mm. So holding power that doesn't have spikes, because every time you spike when you're going, say, 92%, all of a sudden you ride 110% for 30 seconds, what's the result with the heart rate? It spikes yeah. and that's like burning a match. Yep. So so that's one of the definite ones that I, I use and people just might laugh at that, but it's absolutely helped me as a as a tr- as a cyclist. It's definitely obscure, but 
it makes perfect sense. And the most obscure part about it is that in most hard sessions, we do this anyway because we've got a number to hit and so we're trying to hit that. We're focused on that. But it's in the easy sessions where we just relax. doesn't really matter whether we're pushing 100 watts, 150, 200. You know, we're, um, we're not really focused. Whereas you're taking these easy sessions and concentrating for 40 minutes, you know, Recovery sessions are boring enough as it is on the trainer. <laughs> and um, I guess this is a way either to make it more entertaining for yourself as well, but um, that level of concentration in a recovery ride is not easy and that is amazing practice going forward. And I think that's one of the reasons why I do it. I know the reason why I do it, but but one of the, the positives is it makes me get through the session, you know, oh, far out, 45 minutes holding this ridiculously low power. It's like, you know, this is so boring but it's not to me. Mm. I've challenged myself with something in the event, yep. in the session. And, and boy, the, the session goes so quick because, you know, I'm concentrating on my pedaling action, even though it's ridiculously low power. Mm-hmm. But the cadence I'm trying to hit is 100 RPM um, and that power number. And as you mentioned in that, one of the bonuses, bonus, uh, unusual ways to become a better athlete we're going to mention, which we've mentioned plenty of times before, is the rollers. And you just, you keep saying how much value there is in the rollers in terms of learning to keep your pedal action smooth. Um, and you always say it, it forces you to pedal properly. Yeah. Uh, rollers with resistance is, is actually better than just rollers. But if you don't have rollers with resistance, rollers without resistance is okay. And it's fine for recovery. But I do use the rollers with resistance for some of my other sessions. Um, and on the TT bike in the TT position and don't try this at home because it is not easy to do that. Um, so you're actually balancing. So it gets you the feel of what you would be doing outdoors. Um, why don't you just ride outdoors? But there will be many reasons why, because we can control the session. Mm-hmm. It might be raining. Um, you want to do specific things where you're not worried about traffic, et cetera, et cetera. So there's many reasons why we're using them. So when we use them, there's so many benefits, which is one, it feels like outdoor as compared to a stationary trainer where you're locked in. Um, But I can absolutely use the rollers to concentrate on everything that I'm trying to practice. And and it's not easy because if you start pedaling with a poor stroke, you will start bouncing on the rollers and you will end up off the rollers. Mm -hmm. So it teaches you to ride smoothly. And so that's what you want to do in in triathlon or, or cycling. You want to be as smooth. And you look at the best riders in the world or the best triathletes a beautiful pedaling action where the up phase seems equally as effortless as the down. Mm-hmm. Whereas you see, you know, some new riders and they're using their whole body to bounce their head forward as they're pushing down on that side, the head's following it, the body's following it. So you want to have the upper body still and just be like a metronome under your, under your legs, um, whether it's fast or slow, whether it's F- Fred Flintstone style or riding or whether it's just, you know, relaxed, easy pedaling, you just – if the camera was looking from uh, just above, they would think that you're just sitting in a chair. But underneath, the legs are moving, but there's no body movement, yep. you know? And yep. that takes a little bit of core and so much in, in the rollers, you know, you, I can't believe how much core it's, it's actually instigating because the minute you move slightly off, you, you could actually be on your way down mm. on the rollers. So, um, so yeah, I use the rollers um, a heap in yep. my training. Yeah. Um, and it's not something I tell people a lot, but uh, I'm telling everybody now. But, yeah. but it's, 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 it's helped me to become a much better, smoother pedaler, better bike rider, and therefore get the results I want because I've got better control as a rider. Yeah. Good points. Point number two in the uh, five unusual ways, and this is an interesting one for us because it's to do with 
uh, what bike riders love, and that's coffee. But it's interesting for us because we both don't drink coffee. Uh, whereas there are a lot of studies that promote the benefits of coffee just from a general perspective. Uh, and as it always, everything is in moderation. And lots of people push the line and they hear that coffee is good for you and then um, go as nuts as they can on coffee. Um, but there are lots of uh, studies showing the benefits of caffeine and there are more and more studies coming out about the benefits of caffeine for training purposes. And uh, there are examples of um, improved performance for one, uh, especially in a training session, which can help you. Um, and also recently uh, fat oxidation benefits where having a coffee um, prior to a training session um, could help uh, fat oxidation. So you're actually burning fat in the sessions um, helping obviously yourself get lighter and uh, training yourself to be fat, fat oxidated as well, which Dr. Harry has told us in previous podcasts is a good goal to have. So I would like to clarify some of these uh, suggestions from caffeine with someone like Dr. Harry to see uh, the proven benefits of them. But um, this is just one way that you can try and use something that people love to your advantage. Yeah. And we've, we've discussed that with him. So we've, we've got his, his scientific evidence as, as a reason for us to, to actually do that. And, you know, because I don't drink coffee, neither do you, whenever I take a gel with caffeine um, in it, I immediately get um, a benefit. It's clear to me. Mm. It's, you know, there's, it's obvious. And, and I wouldn't have coffee because it's going to be detrimental to my performance uh, because it, it gives me an adre- adrenaline rush so much that I start sh- getting a shake. So mm. I've actually tried to have coffee because I like the smell of it but, yeah. um, and I don't mind the taste of it, but it's actually harmful to my performance. Yeah. So I've got to get my caffeine different way. Um, so if I wanted to get caffeine and, you know, it is an advantage to have to have. Uh, that as a fuel source, um, so you know we're, we're allowed to use caffeine. Um, it's legal, mm-hmm. um, so it is a, a huge advantage, uh, especially to those who don't drink coffee. It's it's as Harry's told us. It's it's we get more bang for our buck because our body can respond so much better because um, it's it's a, an advantage we're not used to. That's a big thing that everyone needs to remember is that everyone will oxidize or um, uh, digest caffeine differently so not everybody's going to be the exact same but you had an interesting experiment a few years ago in your crit racing where you started just filling a second bottle in a one hour crit race because you only needed one bottle um so you put a second bottle just with a tiny amount i don't know 100 mils or 200 mils of red bull or vodka and then with five minutes to go on the race or eight minutes to go you you take yep. that and yeah and um, I, was, I also tried to experiment before a time trial taking some red bull yeah to see what it did whether it sent me too fast at the start. I mean, I'm still controlling my power, but it just, you know, I went flat halfway through the race or – so that was kind of experimenting on myself to mm-hmm. see to see how it went. And I, I definitely felt that, um, you know, the caffeine from whatever source I was getting, um, no matter what stage, it, within within 30 minutes – I, I got a I got a, a different feel, yeah. um, and did I need it at the start of the race? No, I didn't. Mm. I needed it more at the end. Mm. So I changed that experiment. I thought, well, this is this is actually I don't need it here. I mm. need it, and I can't have a drink of this. And and most of the time on a time trial bike, I've only got one bottle, so yeah. I couldn't carry it anyway. I didn't yeah. want to have just Red Bull. Yeah, that's not, that's not what I want. Exactly. So so I ended up you know making sure that I had a caffeine gel yeah. at the end, so that I was getting it from. And the, the the actual Red Bull didn't sit well with me, yep. um, so I stopped doing that because of of that. Yep. So everybody needs to experiment. That's yeah. what I'm trying to say in training. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you'll you'll get to know what your body can can do, can utilize well, and 
and as you know, um, the food that I do or not do, um, and you know, we can explore that if you want. Yeah. Well, I know some pro athletes that, um, that you know, pro running athletes that take two shots of, uh, black coffee. Um, so just trying it straight coffee, caffeine in them, you know, half an hour before an 800 meters and, they're really just trying to amp themselves up for this um, 800 or 1500 because it's a short two minute or four minute effort and they just want to be as as almost legally juiced up as possible. Um, but yeah, moving on to point three, which is also what you just said, uh, actual food and nutrition. And it's again, um, Dr. Harry has spoken about this hack on the podcast. You've obviously done a lot of work with him individually about, um, and you've done this all your career, about adapting your body um, on endurance rides and to be able to do endurance without fuel. And that's a key uh, asset to my racing is I have my nutrition so that's not going to impact me in a negative way. So I, I can never get to the end of the race and go, I stuffed up my nutrition. That's never been something I've said in nearly 15 years. Um, the warning is one exception because I think – the main reason I didn't go so well with the nutrition was because my my inability to consume by the pressure and the pace of the speed of that event. Um, I wasn't able to drink when I wanted to mm-hmm. um, because of certain situations in the pack, um, which the guys who've just done the warning would know exactly what I'm talking about. It is hard in a pack of elite riders to get the fuel in that you want in certain scenarios when you're under pressure a lot. Mm-hmm. And I always say, you know, get your nutrition in when your bike's going fastest and when that would be downhill. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the bike was going fast the whole time. Yeah. So, you know, and felt like you were really under pressure to, to, to get in drinks. And I was concentrating on other things so much that it wasn't the fuel I had. It was the fact that I didn't take it was the problem. Mm. So the fueling method I've got works, but I just didn't execute it. Yeah. So that'd be the only time I think that I could say, well, my fueling stuffed up. It was, wasn't, it wasn't my, uh, actual amount. It was well, it wasn't the amount, but it wasn't it wasn't my strategy of of, uh, of nutrition that cost me. It was that that I didn't actually consume enough. Um, so so going into all these events, knowing that I have a really good plan that works, and I'm not going to bl- uh, fade because of lack of poor nutrition, um, is is such an advantage, and you feel so confident that you know each t- each time I put a number on, I've got my fueling. Yep. down pat and as long as I consume it yep. I'll, I will be able to perform at the top of my level yep. that I expect to so that's a key yep. to and I've practiced that and experimented and it didn't didn't just happen in one or two weeks I've I've honed that in over 15 years and I'm still because I'm getting older I still need to adjust you know to it for different requirements yep. um, and and as we say if you use the example of motor cars if you if you burn the petrol by accelerating out of lights rather than just gradually accelerating out of lights, you, you will burn way more fuel than the person who's conservative. person who hammers flat out um, will keep burning the fuel. So that's the same scenario in, in, a, in, a, in a cycling race or a triathlon. If you're ever forever spiking, you're going to burn more fuel. 
and if the intensity of the event is way higher than you anticipate and you don't have enough, mm. you're going to be short. So you'll burn more fuel by riding at a higher intensity. It's just the same as you if you have a lead foot in a car. Yeah. And one thing for you is that uh, obviously in important races where the intensity is high, um, you've got your fuel down pat, but you also practice on long endurance rides, taking in less and less and seeing what your body can cope with. And that's something that Dr. Harry encourages with a big warning sign and a big warning label that you may well bonk, you know, and yeah. lots of athletes do when they practice this yeah. stuff. Going hunger flat's not enjoyable. No, not but, at all. but you're actually trying to find the line. Mm. Um, and that's why you need to experiment in training. Mm. And I, I'm forever doing that and, and just risking – and, you know, I know it's coming and oh, far out, I've got 20K to go of this ride. It's, yeah. it's getting hotter. Um, you know, I'm going to have to stop and get yeah. refueled. Because you can have stuff with you and yeah. just choose not to do it for as long as possible. Yeah. And I know I'm, yeah. I'm safely, I've got everything in my pocket. I just have to get the water from a tap yeah. and refuel and I'm good to go. And within five minutes, I'll be back. But I've learned where my where my point was. Yeah. Um, so I needed more than that. So, so that's something that I really uh, I encourage people to do. And you know, I've got it to a point where I've never eaten really anything that I have to chew in the last fifteen years. Mm. Um, it's either been two bottles full of the mixtures that I use, or a gel. Yep. And it's never been any piece of food. Yep. And I'm talking uh, before the race, during the race, and after the race. It's it's just making sure that I've got everything that I've used in the past and and it's it's held me in good stead and I really I really you've got to do it it's individual yep. it's, it's not something that I can say this should be doing this yeah because it may not work for you dialing this in is a huge advantage point number four is this is a really interesting one you cannot underestimate the value of going for a walk yeah and I hate walking because um, I'd rather go fast me too um, and I'd rather swim fast or ride fast or run fast and often if I'm walking somewhere I'll jog <laughs> if I'm walking to the train station or something, I'll jog instead. So so what are the values of walking? Well, it really does allow you to recover at, at a rate that's controllable. You just can't walk fast and, and without actually going to a jog. So so you've got to have the mindset of uh, this will help my recovery and, and I use it as an opportunity to do two things. Um, normally people I see listening to podcasts and listening to music, which I think is fantastic, a way to, to catch up on stuff. And I would encourage you to do that. But for me, it's the opposite. I don't want to hear anybody. I talk to enough people all day and I'm, I don't want to hear anymore. I've done enough reading. I just want to have my own thoughts. So the, the benefits are it will help my body recover by having blood flow by moving at a very low intensity. It stops me from going fast because I have to run or ride and that's not what I'm going to do. That's not the goal. Um, dog gets... Dog gets some exercise, that's yeah. a benefit. But it enables me to have a clear thinking period where uh, I'm not concentrating on numbers, I'm not looking at heart rate, I'm just thinking about things that um, are going to help me normally about what am I going to do next when I get home. Um, and normally I'll try and do it in the middle of the day or lunch or before work or I generally do it uh, where I'm tired from work and I need a break and it's 15 minutes or 10 minutes um, sometimes 20, it's not, much, it's not a long walk, yeah. um, but it, I come back refreshed and I know it's actually helped me with re- recovery for the next session, but I actually come back mentally refreshed. So I've, and I've got great ideas and I can't wait to get back to my desk to start in- implementing the things that, um, so it's, it's, it's going to help you in your everyday life as well as recover for your program. 
So they're the two things that I think that I really encourage people to walk. And, and you know, the, the sideline is that if you've got a dog, it's <laughs> great, great opportunity to give the dog some exercise. Yeah, and don't forget that uh, our bodies are designed to move. And this is a little bit different. If you're on your feet all day working a trade or um, for any other reason that you're on your feet, um, this isn't as necessary. But um, if you're at a desk all day, if your job requires you to sit down, then it is vital for you to move your body properly and go for a walk. Uh, you know, the the new saying is that um, sitting is the new smoking. You know, they're worried that sitting down all day is actually, you know, as damaging for our health long-term as you know, we're finding out smoking now is, which is uh, disastrous and scary to hear. For bike riders especially, if you're not um, running ever, if you're not doing any extra walking, you're just sitting all day and then getting on your bike, you're not actually moving your body properly because the position on the bike isn't the best for you long-term and you need to counterbalance that. Even if you're a triathlete and you're getting your running in, um, running, you know, you might, you might not be running with the perfect form because it's it's a high load on the body and you know, naturally running, it's hard to run with good form, but walking, it's much more controlled and you can walk with good form. Um, and so just doing that for your body is so beneficial and if you wanted any more evidence, it's, you know, Team Ineos, the most advanced science-based sports team in the world, um, have pro- have walking as a part of their programming for their athletes. Yeah, and it's encouraging everybody in their program to make sure they walk. And the point you made about cyclists alone, we're not talking about triathletes mm-hmm. now, you know, we sit at our, at our dinner desk, we sit at our office, we sit everywhere, and then we sit on our bike. Yeah. Um, and at, at what point are we standing up like humans are meant to yeah. and for how long? Yeah. So you actually need to get your body to actually have some where some exercise where gravity, um, you know, is, is in control of the whole body and when you're swimming and when you're riding, gravity has no effect because you're being held up by yeah. water or your bike. So, so it is important that you have some sort of resistance against gravity by standing, you know, straight up. Yeah. And I personally love like to walk after a, a bike session or especially after a bike swift race because your legs are just so shot and just feels like you've just got pools of fatigue, which may be the lactic acid or something, just sitting there. And so um, also I struggle to sleep if I don't go for a walk after a swift race, for example. So getting off the bike and then going for a 10-minute walk cool down is just unbelievably beneficial both physically and mentally. Yeah, and, and what you said before about the people who have a physical job where they're absolutely walking up and down ladders or, or you know, having to, to, to actually walk from here to there, landscape gardeners or mowing lawn, there's so many examples of, of people who are on their feet all day. You are not in this category. We're not talking about you mm. because you're doing enough walking. Mm. In fact... It's amazing that you can train yeah. if, if you've got a job like that, if yeah. you're an electrician or a builder or a painter or a yeah. gardener. If you work in a hospital and you're on your feet all day. Yeah, a nurse yeah. who's walking up and down, up and down stairs, uh, doctors. You know, there's so many people who could cover 20K in a day. Yeah. They're not the people we're talking about. You need to actually rest yeah. um, when you get an opportunity. Yeah. Point number five, uh, and... This one, quite simply, mindset. Now, this is something that is so important, um, but we never actually train. Who sits there and trains their mindset? Um, But we know just uh, undoubtedly how much uh, mindset has an effect on your performance. And all the pros know this, and lots of pros employ psychologists, sports psychologists, uh, high-performance mindset coaches to help them perform because – you cannot be able to say that how much the mindset plays a part in your physical performance. And this is proven by the fact that at the Olympic Games, you know, a guy gets to the table tennis final and he's hit 
a million balls in his life, yet he chokes up and he can't hit a ball in to save his life. It happens in tennis all the time. You know, these these guys have hit a million balls throughout their 25-year pro career. Yet, can't serve out the match. Yeah, they can't serve out the match. They double fault, you know. And um, Golfer who's standing over a one-foot putt to win the championship misses. Yeah. Why is that possible? Yeah, and he could do it with his eyes closed. In fact, any other day he could literally, you know, he could literally close his eyes, walk up and hit it in. And that's because the mindset's getting in the way. So you have to understand this and have to start asking yourself, okay, well, how can I improve this? And the first thing you can ask is um, how can I control my self-talk more? Because that is one of the major things that is uh, impeding performance from a mindset perspective. So um, often we use the, and we've used this before on the podcast, actually, we use the, uh, the example of what movie are you playing in your head? And whenever you are, um, thinking about performance, you are playing some sort of movie in your head and it's either going to be a positive movie or a negative movie. And often if you're feeling really anxious or nervous about the performance, you're going to, if you ask yourself, well, what movie am I playing right now? Guarantee you're playing a losing movie. And I guarantee uh, that person who's trying to serve out the match is playing at a, a fault movie. They're, they're worried about hitting a fault, you know. And the putt, the putt they've got a line that's missing the hole. Exactly. And they're yeah. playing the wrong visualisation. Yeah, and it's, it is called visualisation and uh, there is such power to this. And um, without having to uh, go see a sports psychologist yourself, you can just start asking, okay, what movie am I playing? You know, and start practising playing better movies and start before a session you know, asking yourself, okay, what's my self-talk doing right now and what kind of movie am I playing? And then changing that and seeing what the results are and experimenting on yourself. And uh, this is just a bit of an unusual thing to do and something that we don't often do, um, but it's worth starting to practice yourself and uh, asking yourself and challenging yourself, can I get better at this? You're spot on and you've taught me this, which I'm so grateful for because it's something that I didn't uh, value enough. And um, for all the people out there listening, it's great to be taught something by your son. Um, and, and I, I put this into practice and the, the event that I did it was one that I actually didn't think I, I didn't know that that's what I was doing. But after the event, I realized because you drilled it into me, um, that I actually did it without even thinking. And it was the event where I crashed and where it was a 90 K ride. I crashed in the first K. I felt sorry for myself. I was sore. It hurt. Um, I got on the bike and the discussion I was having in my head was will I keep going or will I or is it too painful? And so when I had two or three minutes of this to and froing, I decided that I could still pedal and I was pe- I was riding while I was doing this, but I wasn't riding at the numbers that I should have been because I was I was in conflict. I was I was playing a movie of I was sitting on the fence movie. Am I able to keep riding or am I not? And and then when I decided that I was going to ride properly and have a go at riding properly, I started playing the movie that you told me to, which was concentrating on my pedaling, pressure on the pedals, the power, what's the wind doing. I didn't think about the injury from that moment on. And I was actually quite amazed afterwards about my own ability to tune in to what was a positive movie Mm. because you were drilled into me things you can't have any control over, what use are they to you in the next period of time? And so I straight away said, well, if it's going to affect me, at the halfway point I'll get off. Mm. But it wasn't affecting me so I don't have to spend any more time thinking about it. But it was affecting me but I didn't realise that till the end. Um, But because I was so playing the right movie of what am I doing in the the actual event, um, it was an incredible example of 
uh, I had controlled my mind to think about the things that were going to help me achieve the goal that I was there for. And only after I got off the bike and I realised I couldn't walk that I realised, wow, that was pretty powerful. Yeah. That's a classic you example because that situation probably shouldn't – shouldn't take place when you've fractured your hip. <laughs> you know, if you've fractured your hip and yep. you've got that internal conflict, it's probably okay to be asking yourself, is this dangerous or not? But as you said, you turn around and said, well, if it's if it's too painful, then I'll get off later. But right now I can pedal and see. Yeah, and look, the for. example would be if my, if my tibia and fibula were, were fractured and yeah. I couldn't pedal, then that would be yeah. clearly I wouldn't have done that. Yeah. But but it, I didn't know I was fractured. Yeah. I had a fractured pelvis. I didn't know that. And yeah. it just felt sore like a normal crash. Yeah. And because I'd never broken a bone in my yeah. whole career, yeah. um, I didn't expect that that had happened. Yeah. So, so it's just, I'm just saying that this is, oh, yeah, definitely. This is really something that you've, you've shown me how powerful it is. And, and now that I think about it, there's been so many examples that I've had during my career that I did that without mm. even knowing that I was doing it. Yeah. And, and if you become aware of it, then it becomes easier to think about that and you go into that mode because that's why we train to, to, to swim, ride and bike, uh, run better. We're practising those events. Why aren't we practising to have the right mindset? Yep. And why do we neglect that? Yep. Yeah. And a much more common example is when you get home from work and you've got to get into training and you've just got no motivation, you're tired and you just want to relax on the couch and... Um, when you think about training, you are most likely running a really negative movie about it, how much it's going to suck, how painful it is. And we've spoken about one easy tactic to change the movie is to think about your goal and think about your race. And as soon as you, it's your whole physiology changes. As soon as you start imagining that race, imagining being on the start line, your adrenaline amps up a little bit. You start to sit up a little bit more. Your eyes are suddenly more awake because five minutes ago, you couldn't even fathom getting on the bike because you were so tired. You just wanted to sleep for a couple of hours and have dinner. Uh, but suddenly start thinking about these things. You change the movie in your head. You're, you're thinking about and playing the picture of what that race is going to be like, what it's going to feel like when you're there. And then suddenly um, your whole physiology has changed. You've got energy to get on the bike and train. And that shows how powerful it is. That it literally changes the state that you're in. And it's an amazing uh, example. And I've used strategies like we've talked about this, yeah. putting your socks on and taking a photo and sending it to your mate. Yeah. And already you've committed because you've made yourself accountable. And that's... in encouraged him to do the same thing. You've got an example of uh, one of the endurance rides where um, one of your mates was just going downhill at a fast rate and you were able to talk him out of giving up in that part of the day to turning it around to almost wanting to do extra. Yeah. Tell that story. Well, yeah, he basically he bonked and it was the end of an endurance ride and we had – we, probably, we had 15 minutes left, um, 20 minutes left, and he bonked so bad that I wasn't sure we were going to make the last 15 minutes, you know, and we're only a couple of K from home, but he was pedaling slower and slower, and I was thinking I was going to have to push him home, and he was his body language was just completely down to the dumps. He was so frustrated that he had bonked, and um, I was laughing because I just said, you're going to laugh about this tomorrow because when, it, when you're in that – that flat state, nothing is funny. You know, you're really, you're not having a good time, but it was funny for me because I knew that <laughs> we're almost home and you're, you're going to be okay. Um, but I just um, asked him questions purposely trying to get him to focus on something different and focus on um, how fit he's been before. And in fact, uh, this was pretty funny because he was a month before that, he'd had a month of training, but a month before that he was at probably his peak fitness and peak form. And so I was just reminding him of how it wasn't that long ago that he was absolutely flying and that, you know, he would get off this ride, this endurance ride and go to a half marathon run. And he started to perk up a bit and said, yeah, I was doing that, wasn't I? And 
um, after just asking him to um, think about that in a kind of indirect way, suddenly his whole, yeah, again, body language changed and he started to half wheel me and started to get ahead of me and um, was so alive uh, that he, he said, do you want to go do more? And he was kind of joking, but he suddenly just felt so fresh. And how can you go from one state five minutes ago to that totally fresh state when five minutes ago you're in hell um, just by asking different questions and, and thinking about it in your head? And I think that shows the power of this. And I think he actually, uh, because he hadn't been on the ride for, for quite a while, he had anxiety about the whole ride and how he might not be able to keep up and he might be under pressure for a lot of the time. He was playing out that mm. exact thought process mm. whereas he should have started saying, I can do this bunch ride um, with my eyes shut. Mm-hmm. Um, I've done that much training to this point. I've still got a base of fitness. Yep. If he had played a different movie in his head, he wouldn't have even you know, mentioned to you that he was going hunger flat. Yeah. You know, he's just played out the role yeah. perfectly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's a good way to finish off. Uh, there are some bonuses that we've said before, but we thought were worth repeating with regards to in kind of unusual ways. And we just want to quickly mention that no matter how many times we say it, it's still undervalued and an out of the ordinary trick is to do more strength training. And you've said it so many times, go to the hills and do more runs, do more hill riding, yet a lot of people make excuses not to do it. Um, and so although we've said it many times, it's a pretty mainstream answer. Uh, if you're not getting any hills in your training, then um, that is a surefire way to become a better athlete. Uh, especially as a runner and as a triathlete, you want to be as strong as you can at the back end of the marathon. I'm sick to death of saying this sentence, but it is available to you, but you all choose not to. So why? (laughs) So it's being said on this podcast one more time, go and run on the hills. And I'm not saying the day before, the week before your event. You need to do this as a planned performance over a period of time where you start with a little bit of hill running and gradually improve. And, you know, I have to spell it out. That's exactly how you should be doing it. Yeah, but the hills are miles away from where I live. Well, get in your car and drive. And don't keep coming up for reasons that you can't do it. Um, And start by doing it once a month and then progressing from there. I'm giving you 100 examples of how you can play the right movie in your head Mm. to actually make it part of your program. And... You know, some sessions we, we don't actually want you in the hills. Some sessions we want you to do an easy run. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about more the endurance run where your option is to go and run on the flat course or run in the hills. And you're going to get better bang for your buck. I've, I've told the story many times of why we moved to, to Belgrave in the Dandenongs so that I could become a better runner at the back end of yep. my marathon in a triathlon. Yep. And it also helped me as a marathon runner. Yep. And, well, before I knew it, I became a good runner yep. and because of the strength training. Perfect. That's a great way to finish. It's been a, another massive podcast. As always, thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time.